Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have CJ Johnson. He's listed as one of the top rising voices in media. He's been featured in GQ, Men's Health, Forbes, BuzzFeed, and more. He got his start in TV and he's grown leaps and bounds since. CJ, let's go. I saw on social media that you posted a picture with Manscaped. How did that happen? I probably feel like every day I get queries from different campaigns and projects to work on. So they approached me to do an ongoing paid relationship with them. I'm a uh, digital marketing consultant and a social media influencer, GQ Insider, and a Google policy leader. So a lot of my clients are small startups and entrepreneurs to Fortune 50 companies, big tech. So a lot of times I'm called in to do create these creative campaigns or marketing infrastructures. I would love to know your thoughts on social media as an agenda and as a tool. The way I look at social media is absolutely like a screwdriver or a hammer. Different social media channels are like different tools that I have in my toolbox. If I have hundreds of thousands of followers or zero followers, that has nothing to do with how I feel as a human being or a person. I make sure that I'm using the tools to build something. That's the goal here when you're using social media. You should be very aware and conscious of using it as a tool, as a mechanism for communication, not at all a way to show your life is better than someone else's or do comparisons and keeping up with the Joneses. All of that is extremely toxic. And it's something that we actively talk about all the time in different communities all around the world, but it's still a thing. It's not conscious, it's subconscious. Social media tools were supposed to be addictive. They were built that way to be addictive. You have to, so in order to break the addiction, you have to like reframe the way you're looking at it. So I look at social media channels as different types of tools. I break down each channel. What are my goals and how does this fit into my goal? I'm an early adopter. So if there is something new, I hop right on it. Right now I'm seeing out Clubhouse. I use these tools and I look at the metrics behind those tools. I look at who my audience demographic is. I look at how much I want to be invested in each tool. So for me, it's uh, Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, Instagram, seems to be where as an influencer, everybody just wants me to post on Instagram. A lot of times what happens is FOMO. This is as simple as that. I got to get on TikTok yesterday. Everybody's on TikTok, I'm missing out on something. But let's say you're not a very creative person and you're very busy or you don't want to be creative or you're doing TikTok and it's not really working for you. Don't think of it like that. Think of it in a way of, okay, is this to feed my ego? Or is this to feed my purpose? That's usually how I decide if something's for me or not. So for me, me and my daughter love watching TikTok videos. Like we love it. And then as a social media influencer, I understand, oh wow, I can just reshare these videos on my stories or on my feeds. It gives an opportunity for people to see more from me in a very different way. My demo, my audience is very smart. They understand that I'm very inspirational in tone. Let's say I do have like a goofy TikTok video that I'm sharing. That's very off brand. It's very, very new. It may or may not work. 
if it's kind of funny or if it's inspirational in tone, way better. If it's something that is more of the culture, like black culture, and it's goofy and funny, that plays really well too. So it's just understanding my audience. The really interesting part about that is 50% of my audience is white. People are definitely following me and following my journey. And it has nothing to do with color. It has nothing to do with politics. I'm a policy leader. So I'm very much in the political eye. That's 50% of my life right there. When people say, oh, we don't want to be too political. Well, that would work years ago. Now it's the complete opposite strategy from a publicist marketing standpoint. Now you have to say something because if you don't, that omission is much louder than you actually saying something. So you shouldn't be using so many different social media channels. You should be on all of them, but you only need to be focusing your energy into what you could do best and amplifying that. And that's usually one or two social media channels. What do you watch with your daughter on TikTok? TikTok is random. Like when you scroll through it, it's just random videos. Uh, she really likes the cats, dog, anything that's cat related, anything that's dog related. There's certain jokes that she doesn't get that I have the opportunity to explain to her. I'm like, this is why that's funny. And she's like, I get it. I think she's over the whole dancing thing because she watches TikTok dance videos. There was a cat video that I shared the other day where there was a cat screaming, hugging a gnome. And we watched that thing like six or seven times laughing hysterically. Like we just couldn't stop. We really could. That's awesome. And then another thing I wanted to know was how did you become a political leader? That's a really good question. So first of all, I've always been interested in it. My family lives in Washington, D.C. My sister became a publicist at ARP. It was basically through the means of me being like, hey, do you know of any opportunities out there? Any people I should meet? She introduced me to somebody that would eventually become one of my best friends, one of my biggest supporters in D.C. He was a lobbyist at the time, and he was putting together the policy leader group. That's how I became a policy leader. I think what amplified it, though, was that, one, I was already interested in social issues. So I was already choosing sides. In fact, that's actually one of the reasons why I became such a popular voice on Twitter. I was very political. And when I say political, I just mean that I was very aware of what was going on in the world. And if I had an issue with something, I would share it. Now it's so polarizing and toxic, but before it wasn't. When Trump became president, it was like that need, it just exploded. That's the one thing that I can say about the Trump effect that's been pretty positive is that marginalized communities really took that as a war cry, as a rallying cry of like, we need to say something. We need to be heard. Did you experience racism growing up? Oh, hell yeah. Girl, I'm black in uh, the United States of America. Hell yes, I have. The answer is very nuanced and complicated for someone like myself because I was lucky and privileged enough for my dad was in the U.S. Army and we traveled all around the world. So by the time that I was 18, we were living in the Marshall Islands on a three mile long, one mile wide island. I graduated with a class of 25. Bill Clinton come in and out of the island to talk to my dad. So I was introduced to so many different cultures. So by the time I hit LA, LA was a different ballgame. Black folks being like, you're definitely not from LA. But yeah, racism everywhere. But the reason why I say that it's complicated is because I got a chance to see what the differences were. I got a chance to see what the differences were if I was the token black kid in Alabama versus the token black kid in Virginia. 
or I got to see what it was like where I was not the token black kid. It was rich suburban neighborhood where all the black kids were very wealthy. I also got to see what that looked like with brown versus black, yellow versus brown, you know, all sorts of different weird social economical dynamics. My nanny, when I was like a little baby, when I was like not even a year old, we moved to Germany. So my nanny was a white woman and they loved me. I spoke German before I spoke English. They were teaching me German. When you put that into the context of me being a black man in the United States of America, not only do I have these awesome stories of white people treating me very well, I also have these awesome stories of all the shades of the rainbow treating me well. And then I've also seen all of them treat me horribly. I think it's very simple to say like race and racism is based off of ignorance because of racial bias. It's really playing out in a very different way now where it seems to be, just from my experience, it's the ego. When I say Black Lives Matter, that's me saying, I want you to know that my life and my livelihood is just as important as you. We're on the same level here. I'm explaining that calmly. I could explain that by yelling in your face. I could explain that or not explain that at all. I mean, I'm just annoyed with having to fucking explain myself, right? On the other side of that, you either listen to me and you're like, you're right. Or you have an issue with that. And you have an issue with that. What is there to have an issue with? You really do think that you're better than me. That's all ego. And that's where racial biases come into play. I mean, a lot of horror stories that people hear of racial profiling. And me just being a black dude that's just very well-spoken. People get very threatened by that. I deal with tech companies. So I deal in the world of algorithms and data and metrics. We literally do see what that looks like when somebody's being racially profiled and what those metrics and numbers are. If you're interested to know, let's say, for example, with a police officer, we've seen the actual footage of what that looks like. You put up a white dude married to a black woman. All of his friends are black. He has a confrontation with a black dude that looks like me. He's much more aggressive like from the very beginning. And then you have a cop that's super racist, has a very sketchy history. Same situation, handles it completely differently. It isn't because one's better than the other, it's because there's racial bias there. I think it's really difficult to explain that to people that aren't racist, because I think that it's hard to, to comprehend that somebody would be actively looking to hurt you, hurt somebody else, just because of the way they look. How can companies do things better in terms of equal hiring opportunities? One thing that a lot of people are trying to do to make things better is to automate things and to use machine learning and AI and technology to our advantage, right? Because you put your resume into a system, the system does these checks and balances of keywords and different phrases and stuff, and then it pings out a bunch of different candidates. Where's the bias there? <laughs> well, the funny thing is that whoever is inputting that data in the first place may be looking at it through a racial bias lens. That's why there's like so many different issues with that. The whole point, the whole argument here is that there isn't an equal shot. So there needs to be a closer look internally. What does that mean? What does that look like? What can we do better? Even if that means searching out different candidate pools of people of color and women, even if that means certain companies might need to have a quota of like, we need to make sure we're looking at different candidates of, of different backgrounds. It's something that a lot of companies really actively do try to work on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Tulsa massacre, obviously been like a hot topic because of Watchmen 
And, you know, it took a TV show for people to, to know their own fucking history because it's not taught in school. There's all sorts of shit that's going on. Our education system is fucked up too. We just have to be able to empower ourselves to seek out more knowledge about things that we're not very hip to. One of the things that I tell people, you should explore why somebody's so upset. You being upset that they're upset is kind of a strange reaction. That's actually very toxic. That has nothing to do with anything but your ego. And we need to strip that away. There is something that's been happening since the global pandemic that I really appreciate. And that is people are starting to awake and they're starting to be awake of the reality of the world and the world around them. Some people are choosing to be ignorant. It's like that whole matrix scenario of the red pill or the blue pill. Do you want to stay in the, the program and let everything be done for you or do you want to be free? When I was a teenager and I watched that film, I was like, obviously I want to be free, you know, who wants to be, you know, controlled. That scene, it's been coming up ever since goddamn Trump has been president because people are like, which one do you want, the blue pill or the red pill? Some people are choosing to ignore the reality of the situation. We all should try to be better, be our greatest, best version, whatever that looks like for you. I believe in balance. So what I mean by that is that when you got your shit together personally, it just so happens other things fall into place. Usually people are looking for one of two things in life, love and a purposeful job. At the end of the day, they just want to feel and know that their life meant something. That's why it's very important that we acknowledge each other and they're respectful to one another and that we're empathetic and that we listen and we just take a moment try to understand things that we don't understand. I don't think every Trump voter is a racist because I'm sure that I'm friends with plenty of Trump voters that, I, that probably would never tell me that they're a Trump voter. And all my friends are awesome. What I will say is that there's obviously a president who says very polarizing things. And I don't want that person to represent me, period. That's why I'm doing this, to shed light on things that I don't understand and not only better myself, but help other people understand as well. That's good. That's smart. And you're doing it in a very creative way. And you're doing it in a way where you're allowing the opportunity for a conversation. For the most part, usually when it comes to conversation, it's usually one-sided conversation. Some of these conversations, these topics can get be very heated. Again, just because of ego. One of the lessons learned when I was writing my book, I understood that a very simple step, step number one to all of this, is questioning things and asking better questions. I love really exploring the psychology behind all of that. Have you had any great mentors? I've definitely had my fair share. I've been very fortunate that I've had so many different types of, of mentors, from military leaders to men and women of different shades of the rainbow to some really awesome people in Hollywood, from conversations with George Lucas to J.J. Abrams to Clint Eastwood, to Donald Glover. I think the conversation with him probably impacted me the most. Quick story, I was shadowing the writers on the set of Community. At the time, I was a up-and-coming screenwriter. I sat down and had a conversation with him. He was alone, he was working on his laptop, and the cast, they just like left him the fuck alone. They're like, Donald, he's in his mode again. Donald's in his mode again. Joe McHale cracking jokes. Old man, Griswold, Chevy Chase an asshole. And me just like kind of sitting down with Donald and like having a conversation. And at the time, he, he was about to unleash his first music video 
it was really interesting because there's a lot of different dynamics going on in this conversation. Because one, at the time, he was known as a sitcom writer and one of the smartest comedy writers in Hollywood. Actually, I would dare say one of the first names I can remember that was really killing it on YouTube, without a shadow of a doubt. So he knew how to get views. He knew what that meant when the industry didn't quite know what that meant. It was really interesting because he wasn't quite accepting the role of Childish Gambino. He understood who he was as a comedy writer and a comedy actor, but tried not to put so much pressure on himself as being like a hip hop artist. Because at the time, there were not a lot of hip hop artists that sounded like him. He actually was like either really awesome for some people or really whack. And I think he understood that. And because he understood that, he was very reluctant to follow his instincts. And because he was reluctant to follow his instincts, this team, they're like, hey, we're going to drop this music video on MTV. That's how we're going to premiere it. And he's like, why? He said, why don't I just post a music video on YouTube? He said, that's not the way that it's done. And he goes, yes, I get that, but nobody watches MTV. And who's going to watch MTV? Europe. Who's watching that? But I will say that he was right. It was a lesson for me. One, you can change who you are and what you want to be at a moment's notice. You don't owe anybody shit. Like you can be a lawyer today and then be a professional Olympic gold medalist swimmer tomorrow. Do what you got to fucking do. Two, he was so ahead of his time and people weren't taking that shit seriously. People will never just dial in to what you're working on right now. Sometimes you are a few steps ahead and you got to show people what that looks like. You got to show people what the product looks like. You know, the most popular user on TikTok, by the way, is Howie Mandel. That's the person that has the most followers on TikTok. Howie Mandel. You can't tell me that it's a platform for teenagers. It's not. It's a platform for people that are creative. But that one conversation alone really opened up the doors for me because I was like, damn, yeah, even this dude who is killing it, you know, people are questioning it. I come from this traditional entertainment background. And that's the reason why psychology and human behavior is very important to my line of work. Human behavior is not predictable, but for the most part, understanding human emotions and how that works, like that is kind of predictable. What's unpredictable is how technology keeps leapfrogging us into situations. I'm a digital nomad. Work from home has been a part of my lifestyle for the last few years. And then boom, a global pandemic hits and everybody has to work from home people that aren't good at working from home, then all of these other questions started to emerge and all of these other issues that were actually being fought and discussed for a really long time. All of a sudden, it was like a topic of conversation for everyone. One being internet speed. Internet speed is poor in lower income areas and then higher in more privileged areas. There's like racial biases going on even with that. So that makes a lot of sense where you're not going to have access to your actual job. Like you're not going to have access to your job. Even for kids with homeschooling and lessons online, the internet is an issue and also access to devices. Bingo. Even with FOMA, travel was going to have a record-breaking year. The movie industry was gearing up for another record-breaking year. And then both of them got smashed in the mouth. The travel industry is on life support. Entertainment will always find a way sped up the whole launching of streaming channels. They were already doing all of these things, just sped up. What does that mean for us, for everybody else, as far as what's happening next? You most definitely have to understand the digital landscape better. 
every industry is evolving and changing. So if you're the person that's getting ahead of that, you win. For example, summer is going to be over pretty soon. Then we're going to go into fall. What typically happens in fall or winter, like more people get sick. There's a global pandemic going on. This is election season. So expect things to be even more polarizing. Expect people to be even more on edge. Expect more people to be more angry. Expect for more people to want to disconnect and to have something to escape to. Give them something to escape to. What did Spotify just announce? Spotify just announced a partnership with Joe Rogan. They also noted something, which is very, very interesting. They noted that now they're going to start playing videos with podcasts. So newsflash, everybody. Now videos are going to be a bigger play on Spotify. How has fatherhood been in lockdown? My goal here as a father is to prepare my daughter for the world that she's going to be participating in, hopefully being a, a contributor to her community and to society. So it's very important for me to make sure that I, as a man and as a father, I do my part in learning and applying a lot of these different skill sets and different teachings that I talk about a lot and apply that to our relationship and how we do things. So it's very important for me to set an example. So from the very beginning, she's typically around very strong, sort of smart women. I make sure to be very loving and comforting and receptive to their feelings. We have a lot of conversations. I make sure to prioritize my family first and that everything else comes second. In saying that, I'm an entrepreneur. So if I'm around with my laptop, she kind of gets it. She understands that lifestyle very, very well. Her mom is a behaviorist. So she understands the nine to five lifestyle very well. She gets to see the difference. I want her to see the difference. And I expose her a lot to different cultures. I expose her a lot to different art. So she can see through a creative lens what that looks like. We make sure we always have reading time. What I do is I don't fight against technology. We make sure that there's time set aside for nature. And then there's time set aside for technology, I suppose. So that's me as a dad. I definitely believe in that we're, you know, we're preparing the next generation. It is my responsibility to make sure that I'm leading by example. It's a huge lesson in patience. It's a huge lesson in not being a bulldog. The world that I live in, I have to be a shark. I have to cut to the chase. I've had the opportunity to see what it looks like to have massive success and then lose it all build it back up. So that affects you when you're a parent. My stomach for risk-taking is like nauseous. How did you overcome adversity? It's part of what's in my book. To be honest with you, it was a lot of different things. One thing that I should say, one thing that doesn't get discussed enough is the growth process and the ongoing challenges. I think one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that they never talk about what comes after that. They never talk about, well, don't you still have a shitty day? You still have shitty days. I like to see myself as a student of life. If you're listening to this and you think oh, I'm a know-it-all, I am slightly, but for the most part, no, I always have something to learn. Forming habits is literally what breaks so many negative cycles and really puts people ahead. And the issue with forming habits is that it's very difficult for people. Forming habits, it gets boring. You don't see the progress fast enough. Those are two reasons why habits are so hard to form. It's hard when you say to yourself, I'm going to the gym so I can lose weight. So what you've done is you've set up a very abstract general goal of going to the gym to lose weight, but it's going too slow for you. And then life happens and then you get bored and then you don't want to do it anymore. And next thing you know, you gain more weight and then you go back and it's just an ugly, ugly, ugly cycle. But if you were to go to the gym and say, I want this to be a part of my lifestyle, well, that is a complete shift. That's not goal, that's growth. 
So everything that we're aiming for should be growth mindset. Mark Manson, the author of The Art of Not Giving a Fuck, he said his best. He tells a story that he used to love the idea of surfing culture. He was obsessed with it. And then one day he went out and surfed and he was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I just like the idea of surfing. And that is so true to so many of us. Some of us don't like going to the gym. And by the way, when I talk about the story of me, super wealthy, like doing very well for myself and then losing it all, when I lost it all, I got into better shape. Everybody asked me, what gym did you go to? Like, what workout are you doing? I couldn't afford a gym membership. I just did push-ups every single day. I jogged every single day. When I was reading, when I was watching Netflix, I would do different exercises to really tighten my body up. People will say, man, you do so much stuff. How do you have time to do all these things? Since I was 14 years old, I time chunk. If you don't know what that process is, that is doing tasks and chunking times to those tasks. It was literally because of this. We moved around so much. The only consistent thing I had was primetime television. I remember when it was like basic cable. 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. or whatever time zone I was in, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., two hours. So before that, I had to do my homework. Because I've been doing it since I was 14, now, man, everything is like 20-minute increments. Everything is time chunked in so many different ways. So I just know how to manage time really, really well. The book that I'm writing is called The McGuire Method. We're putting the finishing touches on this bad boy. It's really just what kind of breaks down this work-life balance. I really wanted to write something that was contemporary. I really wanted to tackle love and relationships and business and answering a lot of the questions that I get asked. Everyone across the board, from the most successful to the least successful, and whatever you may think success is for you, everybody wants to have purpose. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be heard. And how can we do that in healthier ways now? Let people know how they can find you, how they can find your book. Follow me on Instagram, at CJ Johnson Jr. I am on all social media channels. I do have a website. I'm easy to find if you just type in CJ Johnson Jr. Stay tuned for when the book is released because I would love for you to get a hard copy in your hands. But because of all the things that are going on, I obviously have a sexy voice. There needs to be an audio component. I'm on an episode of Better Call Daddy. This is amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> You've heard from my mom. Now, let's hear from Grandpa. The nice thing about Mr. Johnson's interview is that he amplifies that if you have knowledge and you're learning and you get experiences, he was getting experiences and living in many different areas and getting many different perspectives of different communities and how people live. The more knowledge that you take in, the more live experiences that you get, and hopefully you get sincere uh, messages from people, look how much you can learn. It reaches a point in your life where you say, you know, I'm learning and I've been encouraged and I have people that are trying to relay and encourage me to even get different connections that he was lucky enough uh, to get or fortunate enough to get. And then he starts saying, you know, but I now have reached a point in my life or it doesn't matter what somebody says or put pressure on myself, even brought up going to the gym to lose weight. He was able to graduate to a whole new level. And when you graduate to that new level, then all of a sudden people are asking you for advice. And what is that level? 
that level is, is that you don't give a darn what anybody else says or thinks or where you have to meet certain models. You look at it as a learning and growth opportunity and you try to make sense of developing yourself. And if you go into it with that type of positive outlook and you look at everything as a learning experience, you look at everything as a growth of potential, all of a sudden, there's less pressure on you to do certain things because whatever you do is a positive in your direction. You don't feel the anxiety of being forced to do something. And I think that's a very important lesson from this interview. I want to tell you about UMAP, a program that shows people who they are and how they'll be most successful. Not only did it win the 2020 Career Innovators Award from Career Directors International, but 100% of UMAP certified coaches recommend the program. Let's hear from this week's coach, Gina Riley. I'm Gina Riley, and using the UMAP Career Assessment Profile has been a game changer with my leadership level career transition clients. It's completely streamlined what I was doing before with one comprehensive tool. In just one two-hour coaching call, I can help a person decode and translate their uniqueness and how they'll describe and market themselves in resumes, in their LinkedIn profile, and most importantly, what they're going to say about themselves in interviews. I fully endorse this tool and certification program, so check out myumap.com. That's M-Y-Y-O-U-M-A-P.com. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.